Hello everyone, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. Uh, welcome and uh, a blessed feast of all souls to everyone. Uh, the morning on which I'm recording this this uh, bonus episode of Controversies in Church History. And this uh, shorter episode, we're going to talk about uh, conciliarism, the conciliarist movement and the idea of conciliarism in the Catholic Church. What is conciliarism, and why are we talking about it? Well, if you don't know, uh, recently, very recently, the papacy has announced a synod on synodality, which is to take place all over the world, and where local parishes and dioceses are going to hold synods, and they're going to have discussions, I guess, about something or other uh, in regard to the life of the faith. And uh, you probably have not heard about this. Uh, it was, again, just announced very recently. But it seems to want to introduce this idea of synodality, which basically is a synonym for conciliarism. Uh, it's for, again, government by councils. That's the idea. Uh, apparently the idea of, you know, listening to people and having you know people involved in the process of government of the church seems to be the uh, point of this as far as I can see one. And I thought it'd be a good time to, to come back to the conciliarist movement, which, if you don't know, we're going to get to this in a moment, is a um, movement that sprang up in the 14th and 15th centuries in uh, the Middle Ages in Europe as an alternative to papal governance of the church. Uh, the idea that the church should be governed primarily, it's, you know, primarily by councils, ecumenical councils, and not the pope. And so that would be a good time to go into the background of some of this. <clears throat> and I actually did go into the background of some of this in an earlier episode uh, on the Council of Constance, which we'll talk a little bit about here. If you want more information on that, you go to that on my uh, podcast page. You'll find the episode there. But so we need to define what conciliarism is in more specific terms here. The idea of conciliarism, or governed by, by councils, in the West, anyway, emerges in the Middle Ages. Councils had always been part of the life of the church. They've always been part of the life of the church at local levels. In fact, ecumenical councils before. None of that's new. But what happens in the High Middle Ages is that, generally speaking, you begin to have canon lawyers begin to define more precisely what the, um, the powers of the church are and how they're supposed to be defined. There's lots of debates about this. In particular, in the High Middle Ages, of course, you have papal authority being defined for the first time. Uh, the Pope as the primate, uh, his infallibility. These things begin to be hashed out in the 12th, 13th centuries by canon lawyers mostly, but also theologians. And these lawyers, canon lawyers who built the legal structure of papal power in, in this time period, debated all manner of things. What would happen, for example, if a pope fell into heresy? Most agreed that a, a definition of faith approved by a council and a pope together was superior to the word of a pope alone. Very few thought that a council by itself could overturn a, a pope's um, decision. However, in the 13th century, certain ideas began to uh, circulate into, um, into, into, uh, into church thinking that would feed into what we've come to call conciliarism. And there are basically two ideas. One is the idea that the church had a fundamental law, that there were fundamental laws that 
Everyone, even popes, had to obey a divine, a divine constitution, in other words, which neither the pope nor the bishops could alter, but which also included the authority of bishops. The idea was the pope wasn't so all-powerful that bishops were merely his creatures. They had their own independent uh, autonomous authority, too. The other idea originated in Roman law. Uh, Roman law was taught by what are called civilian lawyers or civil lawyers in the Middle Ages. And this idea was an idea that amounted to an early doctrine of popular sovereignty. And this is the idea coming from ancient Roman law, that the body of the people taken together was superior to that of the emperor. That the emperor was superior to the people as individuals, but not as a body. Now, this was always a minority opinion among these civil lawyers, but... Uh, what's going to happen is both of these ideas are going to be taken up by these conciliarist thinkers later on. And what leads to this development of conciliarism in the 14th and 15th century is the well, a couple of things. One is the centralization of the papacy, uh, growing um, you know, bureaucracy uh, in, uh, in Rome first, but especially in uh, Avignon. If you don't know, the papacy left Rome in the early 14th century, moved to France, papal court. And specifically it's there, you begin to have, you know, curial cardinals, bishops begin to chafe at you know, papal authority, the papal centralization of the church. And um, in particular, you're going to have conflicts uh, emerging, not just uh, amongst you know, bishops and everything, but between popes and temporal princes. For example, in 1320s, Pope John the 22nd will get into a conflict with a monarch, Louis of Bavaria. And you're going to have lots of scholars flee to the court of Louis de Bavaria. And they're going to take up uh, ideas that were developed by canon lawyers and develop them into conciliarist theories in opposition to what they thought as, saw as papal abuses, uh, abuses of papal authority by, by John the 22nd and others. Even more than this, you have at an ecumenical council itself in the early 14th centuries, 1311, 1312, the Council of Vienne, you have um, an author, William Durante the Younger, producing a work which criticized the centralization of the papacy's power and recommended the calling of general councils every 10 years, as well as subjecting all legislation of the universal church to the approval of councils like this. So this begins uh, as a way of trying to curb papal authority. By the 1330s, you have uh, much more radical ideas in circulation. Two people in particular are important in this development. A man named Marcellus of Padua, who was the chancellor of the University of Paris. And William of Ockham, a, uh, an English um, theologian. Both refugees at the court of Louis, the, Louis Bavaria introduced conciliarist theories. Marcellus of Padua, and again, he's he's on the side of Louis of Bavaria in this debate about, you know, because uh, John the 22nd and excommunicates Louis of Bavaria at one point about where is the Pope's authority lie in temporal matters. Marsilius of Padua uh, argued that only the whole people, the whole Christian people together, could exercise coercive authority over other members of the church, not the priesthood, including the Pope. Again, this was a, a way of trying to separate out, trying to deny the Pope's you know, authority that way and, and restrict it. On the other hand, uh, William of Ockham, 
um, denied the divine institution of the papacy itself. It wasn't of divine or, or ordinance. It was a later development in his, uh, his mind. And um, in emergencies, um, Occam argued, uh, I, uh, a pope could be deposed if he became a heretic, for example, and a council could govern the church in his stead. And so you're having people play with these radical ideas in the midst of conflicts. Uh, these ideas, by the way, never catch on. Marsilius and, um, and Occam, they're too radical for people at the time. And yet, they die down once the conflict between uh, the kings of Bavaria and the popes dies down. But they come back in the 1370s. Why? Because there's a schism. I also have a, a podcast on the Great Western Schism in 1370s when you have rival popes being elected. And uh, what happens after this is you have, once again, in particular, academic theologians resurrecting these conciliarist ideas. In particular, again, the University of Paris is important part of this stuff in the Middle Ages. Uh, Pierre Dailly, who's a Paris theologian, later a bishop, um, advocated for a council to end the uh, general council to end the schism in the 1380s, uh, and claiming that uh, a council could act without the pope because the bishops had authority directly coming from Christ, and so they didn't need his approval to, to hold a council, which, by the way, the Middle Ages, canon law stipulated that, if I'm not mistaken. It was believed you had to have a pope to do that. And that's still, I believe, the, stand, the, the uh, teaching today. And also from a right of natural right of self-preservation. The church couldn't just go to pot because there was a schism. Uh, his successor, actually, a pupil of his, Jean Gerson, a very widely respected man, theologian, kind of a mystic, also uh, Chancellor of the University of Paris, a uh, very famous spiritual writer, also um, advocated for this. He also advocated for councils and assigned a corrective role to theologians in the church. And this is important because what's going to happen is that uh, theologians are going to be really important in this because they're becoming, universities are becoming more important in late medieval Europe. There are more and more universities, more and more theologians. They want to use their expertise to help reform the church, and this is a big part of their model. The most famous and most comprehensive of these ideas uh, came from the pen of a German theologian, Nicholas of Cusa. He's actually the most brilliant man of the age in many ways. He wrote a book called De Concordia Catholica, of Catholic Concord in the 1430s which will be written for the Council of Basel, which we'll come back to in a moment here. And his idea was that the church as a whole was indefectible, but that uh, consent needed to be institutionalized uh, by some sort of representation, like you need to have some sort of representational body beyond tradition and canon law uh, as being necessary for the governance of the church. Now, I should mention here, all these thinkers I'm mentioning, uh, Gerson, Dailly, who's all still included the papacy. They all thought the papacy was necessary and they all thought it should have power, but they favored ecumenical councils as having the final authority over the church when there was a uh, disagreement. So some of these things are, again, this, 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 these people weren't as radical as the, these earlier thinkers, but they're still taking, trying to take the church in a direction where councils are more normative in the life of the church. And so, well, eventually they do get around to holding a council to end the Great Western Schism in 1414. The people behind this already have a very fleshed-out idea of conciliar superiority. 
And they're very, at this point, very, very, very also very intent on undoing the centralization of the church in the hands of the papacy. They want to, they want to strengthen the local churches at the expense of the universal church, in other words. And in fact, they do something that's never been done before or since. The bishops at Constance did not organize, did not vote as individuals. They were actually organized in groups as nations based on their political allegiances. The king of Spain, the king of Castile, and Le- Castile, the king of England, the king of France, which was, a again, a radical innovation. And the idea was to emphasize local national councils at the expense of, again, the universal church, in practice the papal curia, which everybody hated. <laughs> um, also at this council of Constance, unsurprisingly, Academic theologians had a real big influence on it, both in personnel and procedures. Um, there were uh, several hundred um, doctors of theology and canon law at the Council of Constance, including Pierre Dailly and Jean Gerson and other conciliarists. So there's, there's a synergy between holding councils and having experts who like to direct these councils uh, in, in the conciliarist movement that kind of go together. And when they came to Constance in 1414, they had three aims. Uh, end the schism, condemn the heresies of John Wycliffe and John Huss. If you want more information on that, go back to my episode on the Council of Constance and reform the church. Now, they achieved the first two, um, but the third they signally failed at. And one of the reasons is you have a lot of national rivalry between the various uh, Bishops representing different different countries. Uh, this is, and I guess I should mention this, uh, the, in 1414, 1415, 1416, 1417, uh, the Hundred Years' War is going on between France and England, so they don't get along very well. Plus, there's conflicts within the Holy Roman Empire. If you know what the Holy Roman Empire is, it's a German monarchy in the center of Europe, and there are conflicts going on within the empire uh, between the King of Bohemia and the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, so you have all these conflicts going on as well. And so um, so all of this probably contributes to, and this is one of the things that goes on at Constance. Again, but I should mention more of the backdrop here at Constance. By the time you get to 1415, there are not two, but three popes. Three people claiming to be legitimate popes. So they have a serious emergency on their hands. And then in the midst of all this conflict, they have those problems as well. And so... Um, the schism plus this conflict plus the unusual nature of this gathering um, led to radical conciliarists sort of winning the day briefly at the beginning of the council and asserting the authority of of the Council of Constance in very radical ways. Um, in fact, in, uh, April, uh, in April of 1415, they were trying to get the anti-pope who had actually convene the council with them, John the 23rd, to abdicate. Rather than abdicate, he fled. Because <laughs> he didn't want to give up his authority. So in response to this, they passed a decree called Hic Sancta. And I'll read this, the main passage of this decree. It's important for us. Because at this point, they felt their, their authority was under threat, right? Can you even do this? Can you even, can you even end the schism without a pope? So what do you do? And they, uh, the fathers at Constance passed, said this in this decree... Read it here. Quote, this holy synod of Constance, which is a general council for the eradication of the present schism, 
uh, and reform to God's church in head and members, declares that legitimately assembled in the Holy Spirit. Again, they invoke the Holy Spirit because eh, the Pope's not there. Or we don't know who the Pope is. We're going on. Constituting a general council and representing the church militant. It has power immediately from Christ. And that everyone of whatever state and dignity, even papal, is bound to obey it in matters that pertain to the faith, the eradication of the said schism, and the general reform of the said church in head and members. Unquote. This is the conciliarist position on steroids. Um, the Senate is is the head of the church. Um, it can bind people. It's uh, it's got the Holy Spirit directly. It represents the church. It represents everybody else. Uh, it's about as bald a statement as you can get of this. And the decree went on to authorize punishment for anybody who obeyed, disobeyed the council's decrees. Or, quote, any other legitimately assembled general council, unquote. So it's, it's, it's asserting in no uncertain terms councils are superior, are the superior um, organ in the church. Other decrees passed uh, tried to um, perpetuate this idea of conciliar primacy. Uh, one edict stipulated that it should be uh, general councils ever held every five years. Uh, and then um, seven years after that, uh, uh, another council should be held another five years after that. Another seven years. In other words, perennial councils. Um, this should be a permanent feature of the uh, church's life. Uh, other uh, other uh, decrees said that the councils can meet in the future without any need for summons. In other words, without need the Pope uh, to convoke a council. Uh, and I should mention one last thing, is that the, some of the uh, um, um, other decrees uh, were passed calling for future popes to make a confession of faith, which bound them to preserve the faith of, quote, the Holy Fathers and General Councils unchanged to the last dot, unquote. So you see there all the things that you have here. The, the idea is the, the Pope is, you know, aggrandizing too much power and uh, we need to sort of restrain him in order to, to maintain the faith there. So this is really, it's, it's part about ending the schism. It's part about controlling papal authority and its abuses. It's also about maintaining the integrity of the faith. Now, that decree was passed by a, 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 an ecumenical council which everyone agrees is an ecumenical council. Scholars still debate whether this decree is actually something that legitimate. Uh, is it still binding? If it did, it would be a huge problem, to say the least, um, because the Church has said in other binding statements later on the total opposite of this. Uh, as far as I can tell, there's no real agreement on its status. Uh, the most convincing argument that it's not goes something like this. The idea is that... Um, Constance was not a legitimate council until Gregory XII, who is the, um, this is a long story, there were three popes at the time, the pope who was residing in Rome, who was the Roman pope at that point, was a guy named Gregory XII, he's the only one who voluntarily abdicated um, his, uh, his crown, and when he did so, he did so on the condition that he could come to Constance in July 1415 and convoke it himself. In other words, in his mind, the council didn't begin legitimately until after they've issued those conciliarist decrees. And that is fact, as far as I can tell today, the official line of the church is that it didn't really begin until a real pope um, 
uh, got there. In fact, there's lots of reason to think, by the way, that the Roman line was always the true line of popes. So there's that. It should be mentioned, by the way, no one doubts the validity of the sessions held after Martin V was elected. He's the guy that eventually gets elected in 14, 1418 as uh, Martin V, uh, the final reunification of the papacy. And in the final session of that council, Martin V promised that he would, quote, hold and inviolably observe and never uh, contravene in any way each and everything that had been determined, decreed, and concluded in matters of faith by this present sacred general council of Constance, uh, and not otherwise, unquote. Now, he gave that statement in the context of a sort of bitter, there was a, a, a fight broke out in the council in the last session, a sort of shouting match between different nations, and he had to calm them down. So, uh, again, this is all kind of confusing. Again, scholars find this confusing. Uh, was Heik Sancta really meant as a solemn, dogmatic dis definition of faith? Some people have, you know, um, made the claim that it was merely an emergency decree. And some people have questioned whether Martin V meant to include Heik Sancta as part of the dogma of the Church or not when he confirmed its decrees. They mean everything since the uh, uh, since the time that the bishops started meeting there, or only since there had been a legitimate pope. And I don't think he recognized uh, Gregory XII as being a legitimate pope. So it's very confusing. However, in the event, uh, conciliarism died pretty quickly after the council. It seemed to have triumphed, uh, because Martin V uh, keeps his word. Uh, he... Um, he uh, convokes a council at Pavia in 1422, as Constance had assist, insisted four years later. But it was so poorly attended, uh, there were so few bishops coming, and so divisive, all that it accomplished before its dissolution in 1424 was to move to the city of Siena uh, in Italy and then name the city of Basel in Germany, or in modern-day Switzerland, as the meeting place for the next one. When they did meet again in 1431, Martin V... Uh, died shortly after it convened. And almost immediately, the fathers at Basel began asserting their authority over the new pope, Eugenius IV. Uh, Eugenius tried to dissolve the Council of Basel, failed uh, in 1433, and had to sort of uh, hold his tongue. But eventually, he found a, a way to get around this, because you had people, as we'll get to in a moment, uh, asserting more and more radical ideas about the place of councils in the life of the church at Basel. Basel was a real radical, and it's not recognized, by the way, as an ecumenical council for reasons that will become apparent in a second. Um, but Eugenius eventually, um, uh, eventually uh, called uh, for the council to transfer itself to first Ferrara in Italy and then later to Florence. And the reason why was is that Eugenius was hosting a delegation from the Byzantine emperor. This is the, the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul and Turkey. This is the Eastern, this is the Orthodox Church. Because they were trying to have a reunion. And so when he issued the, that, that call, the majority of bishops at Basel went to Ferrara. And so he got the majority of bishops back on his side. But some remained at, um, this is in 1438 when he does this, some remained for another 10 years or so at Basel trying to still assert control over the Pope. In fact, those left at Basel in 1438 declared Eugenius deposed as Pope and elected an anti-Pope. 
And all this went on for the next 10 years, even as they're holding a council in Florence, which does, by the way, briefly reunify uh, the church, uh, the Orthodox churches with uh, Rome. It doesn't last very long, that reunification podcast for another time. Anyway, uh, the point is, the the, uh, the diehards at Basel only gave up in 1449 when both the remaining members of the council and their anti-pope eventually made their submission to Eugenius' successor. He died, Nicholas V. And this effectively was the end of conciliarism as a program of reform. It had been discredited by 1450. And part of the reason for this is that conciliarism in practice because it opened up decision-making, you know, beyond... That was the whole point, right? We want to get other people involved besides the Curia in running the universal church. Because it did so, it invited numerous conflicts <laughs> into its life that its proponents could not contain. To give you ex- most obvious, just to give you one example, Basel's decision to elect an anti-pope in 1438 was a devastating blow it reminded everyone of the, of the Great Schism, which they had just overcome, and associated um, conciliarism with schism. But even before that, um, disunity was present among the conciliarists at Constance uh, because those different nations bickered amongst themselves constantly. Not just French versus English, but Italians versus everyone else. Ital- everyone was uh, suspicious of the Italians because they didn't like the papal curia. Uh, the Italians, of course, especially the, the people of Rome, thought of the papacy as their own personal, <laughs> personal uh, institution. They didn't like the they didn't like the idea at all. It had left for so long, going to France. They didn't want it moving again. And in fact, these these um, these rivalries among these nations were so intense that when they did meet at Basel in 1431, they abandoned the whole idea of voting by nations altogether. But moreover, this uh, what. Uh, happened with the conciliarists is by attacking the universal organs of the universal church, the papacy, the curia, and everything like this, they set in motion a um, uh, they set in motion a process they couldn't control because at uh, one of the main you know one of the big theories among people like Jean Gerson, for example, at Constance was the care of souls was the most important thing, right? Being a pastor, being pastor, that's that's the big word today, right? Be pastoral. If you're not being pastoral, you're not a real, you know, whatever. Uh, you're not a real pastor or not a real bishop or something. And this led to serious attacks at Constance on those prelates, mostly religious, you know, monks and abbots, who did not have a care of souls. And they became so, so this became so intense uh, that when uh, they met at Basel, this, this spread to other areas of the church, where, uh, for example, at Basel, lower clergy, priests, you know, parish priests, and non-clergy, that is theologians, uh, turned their criticisms against the bishops themselves. Um, the most radical of these conciliarists wanted to include laymen in conciliar decision-making, even about matters of dogma. And, in fact, the anti-pope that, uh, that the bishops at, uh, the conciliarist bishops at uh, Basel elected, Felix V, as his title they took, was in fact a lay prince. They elected a, lay, they elected a layman as anti-pope. You can imagine. So what happens is the conciliarists had wanted to reform the church by 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 uh, strengthening the local church at the expense of the the universal church, basically weakening the papacy in order to to uh, to raise up the local churches. But 
because they set in motion all these conflicts. National versus universal church, lower clergy against higher, national churches against each other, laity versus the clergy. Uh, all it did was weaken the papacy and cause disarray, which is one of the reasons it fell apart. Now, um, this theory, by the way, the, the practice is dead by 1450, 1460s at the latest. Pius II, um, the Pope in the 1460s, does issue a condemnation of, uh, of conciliarism. But it's lived on in theory, both within and without the Catholic Church ever since. Uh, people were still accept, expecting, for example, it really created the expectation that true reform would only take place in the Church if there was an ecumenical council. And um, if you've ever wondered why, for example, one of the reasons why during the Reformation, Protestant Reformation in Germany, why the bishops did so little to stop <laughs> um, the, uh, the spread of Martin Luther's ideas is they were, they were expecting a reform council to meet in Germany to determine this. They didn't trust, you know, the Pope had condemned Martin Luther, but they were still kind of, there were still lingering doubts about the papacy amongst the bishops there. Conciliarism would inspire later movements in the church, uh, in the French church, for example, in the 17th and 18th centuries, called Gallicanism. Gallicanism, and this actually goes back a little bit of ways, because the French church had always been kind of sort of independent of Rome to a certain degree. But Gallicanism was the idea that Rome's authority was limited by that of temporal rulers, the French king, of course, by general councils, but also the customs and traditions of particular churches. And this idea will spread and have a lot of, in, uh, have some influence in 18th century Europe, especially on the eve of the French Revolution. And outside the Catholic Church in the 16th century, during the early phases of the Protestant Reformation, you're going to have several reformers, people like uh, Thomas Cranmer uh, of uh, England, for example, trying to call for a council to, to, to unite all the Protestant reformers. Nothing ever comes of it. For the most part, it dies out after the French Revolution in the 19th century is the great age of, you know, papal centralization. We go through a second, you know, phase of papal centralization, which people are, have been reacting against in the 20th and 21st centuries ever since. I think we all can agree today that papacy has become too centralized. Most people do in terms of its structures and everything. Um, not surprisingly, a few theologians and scholars have tried to resurrect some sort of conciliar model, especially following the Second Vatican Council. Most notably, the dissident progressive theologian Hans Kung tried to resurrect it in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, he wrote a book um, basically denying not only papal infallibility, but any infallibility whatsoever to the Church, um, essentially trying to, again, the idea is to democratize, I guess, decision-making in the Church. Likewise, um, and I think makes a better case for it. I don't think there's much of a case to be made now. In any case, but still, you also... And he, by the way, Hans Kung, uh, appealed to the Council of Constance, as did the eminent historian Francis Oakley, who's, uh, among other things, been the president of William College. He's retired now, but he's a fine historian, I will say that. Um, um, he has been writing since the 1960s that... The Council of Constance was authoritative, and in particular, he has argued that Hake Sancta, that decree which espoused conciliarism, was legitimate. Uh, it should be binding. 
And moreover, he has a more radical line than I think anybody else I've heard, but I think this has a lot of, I think it has a lot of support amongst academic theologians. Um, one of the reasons why Hake Sancta is so controversial is, of course, at the First Vatican Council in 1870, papal uh, primacy is, is enshrined into the church's, church's teaching by solemn dogmatic proclamation. Whereas what Oakley has been arguing ever since the 1960s is that um, Hake Sancta and Constance and conciliarism proves the church's doctrinal pronouncements can never be permanently binding. Other words, in his mind, they can always be re, uh, further revised later down the road by councils. He he wrote a book in the 1960s uh, called uh, "Council Over Pope?" Question mark. The answer is yes. By the way, um, he he resurrects this full blown conciliarism. However, he uh, resuscitates it, and as does Kung, with one major you know um, difference, and that difference is that. In the nineteen, in uh, the earlier conciliarists in the, in the Middle Ages, had been concerned to curb papal excesses, but also to preserve the constitution, the fundamental laws of the Church unchanged. Oakley, Kung, and others seem to be thinking of conciliarism as a way to alter the Church's fundamental constitution, to alter its fundamental structure, after the model of secular governments. As far as I can tell, reading reading uh, Oakley, and Oakley wrote a. a, a a uh, fairly short essay in, I think it's America, America or Commonweal, one of those two two uh, journals in 2013, making this argument. So you don't have to read his book, you can go read that, but basically making the argument that nothing, no dogmatic pronouncements of the church are, are permanently binding in principle, and that the will of the whole church, as uh, expressed by councils, can alter it. Uh, and this is something, by the way, uh, that uh, Benedict XVI criticized. Uh, if you he um, you can find this on the internet, actually. Uh, when he became pope in 2005, he gave a famous address in 2005 um, Christmas address to this curia. This is the famous uh, hermeneutic of rupture speech. But in that speech, he also talks about how certain theologians treat the Second Vatican Council at, like it's a political body. As, uh, as if a political body could alter the fundamental constitution of the church. And what he says in that speech, I'm, I'm summarizing here for the sake of time, is that you can't because the church's, church's uh, constitution is of divine origin. Uh, it's immutable. It has to be unchangeable. So you have this radical historicism being added by the people who tried to resurrect this conciliarist idea in the 1960s. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Uh Quite frankly, I have no idea what the purpose of the Synod on Synodality is. That's what I started with this with. Um, is this uh, something like conciliarism? I have no idea. It's possible. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know where that term synodality, which is a neologism, uh, it only goes back as far as I was able to trace it a few decades. The first reference, um, the first that use of that term was in French. Um, there was a, an issue, a, a series of a collection of articles issued in 1992 that came out of a meeting of the Cong International Congress of Canon Lawyers in 1990. And I think it's the title of the book is La Synodalité. So it's a French term. So therefore it's of suspicious origins. No, I'm just kidding. My French are great. Um, but it seems to have been picked up by theologians since then. There was a work published in 2005. I think it's called Synods and Synodality. 
uh, edited by a, a gentleman named Alberto Maloney. Uh, Maloney is a uh, hist- uh, uh, church historian, ecclesiastical historian, at the University of Bologna in Italy. And uh, if you don't know what this is, he's a member of what's sometimes referred to as the Bologna School. He and a bunch of other very eminent historians, Giuseppe Alvarigo. Um, there's one, by the way, in the States who's a very political guy. His name is Massimo Fagioli, big on Twitter from what I hear, uh, who take this line that the Second Vatican Council basically did alter the Church's fundamental constitution. Uh, some of the people would deny this, but this is this is the, the claim that's made about them. I think there's something to it. And uh, they definitely talk about Vatican II as being a break with the past, as being a as marking a break with the pre-conciliar church. And um uh, these people are very influential, by the way, in academic circles. So, uh, so that they embrace that term is, I think, significant. Uh, one thing I will say that's, you know, um, just in general about the whole notion of, you know, conciliar government, conciliar decision making. Well, a couple of things. First of all, is of course there are always councils in the church. We have parish councils. We have local synods. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's, it's fine. It's been part of the church's. Um, practiced. However, conciliarism is something else entirely. It seems like a very desperate remedy for what are real problems. You know, there's there are problems with centralization. There's problems with corruption in the church. Good Lord, you know there are problems with the corruption in the church today. You've just seen, you know, for example, a few weeks ago, the um, more revelations of sexual abuse coming out of France, if you pay attention to these things. Yeah, there are problems. However, I'm just not sure increased synodality or increased conciliar decision-making is a remedy for this. One of the things that I, I find troubling about both Vatican II and Constance is, in fact, the influence of not just academic theologians, but bureaucrats, experts. Uh, experts love meetings, councils, gabfests. Um, because such uh, gatherings tend to be favorable for demands for quote-unquote expertise. And it gives academics and others uh, avenues for influence, which they they want. And I say this because, look, I, I come from a secular academic background. They like having influence, do academics, do experts. And everyone today, for obvious reasons, is very skeptical of expertise. We need expertise in the church. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But I am very worried that uh, this synod on synodality may, if it's not controlled carefully, resurrect some of the same problems that conciliarism introduced in the life of the church in the first place. In any event, that is uh, a little bonus episode on conciliarism. Hopefully you got some good background out of that. Again, if you want more information on the Council of Constance, go to my uh, anchor page, or you can find my podcast on virtually any or most of the most of the actual big time, uh, um, uh, big time uh, um, uh, platforms: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all that stuff. Uh, also, please visit my uh, my Facebook page, Controversies in Church History. Visit my website. Uh, I have a website, churchcontroversies.com. I'm doing more things with it now. I'm posting stuff on there. I might actually have. A, a, a blog post, which is actually an article, which I submitted somewhere, and I don't think is going to be accepted. So, look at that in the next couple of days. As well, there'll be another bonus episode coming, uh, probably next week. 
Uh, eventually, eventually, I will restart a new series of, of podcasts on a single topic, a little more in depth for you guys. For you guys that like that sort of thing, all in liberation theology, it's coming. Uh, my duties as a teacher uh, come first, but I'm getting there. I'll be there hopefully at the end. Uh, look for that at the end of end of November, beginning of December. So, uh, in any case, thank you guys again. Have a blessed feast of all souls. God bless you all, uh, and take care.